Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you a selection of talks that took place at the 1888-2016 gathering held at the White Hart Pub at One Mile End in the East End of London over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of November 2016. The following presentation is by Adam Wood and Neil Bell, giving us a history of the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage and its associated Orphans Fund. Adam and Neil are responsible for the recent republishing of Howard Vincent's Police Code 1889, the guidebook for the Met Police during the Victorian era, which originally had a share of its proceeds from sales donated to the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage. And Adam and Neil continue that tradition with the proceeds from the republished book Aiding the Orphans Fund as well. I'll include in the show notes the website of the Orphans Fund if you would like more information on the charity and make a donation. And the excellent slideshow presentation that accompanied their talk is uploaded for you to grab on this episode's podcast page on casebook.org. So let's turn it over to Adam Wood and Neil Bell at 1888-2016 and a history of the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage. Conducting our research into the police code book, we asked the board of management of the Orphans Fund if there's anything we weren't allowed to discuss. And we were told there were just two things. Firstly, how much Queen Victoria paid towards the fund, and how one of the nurses gave syphilis to two of the boys. <laughs> so, sorry, Robert, we won't be talking about that. <laughs> it was a sad fact of life in the 18th and 19th centuries that the majority of working men were forced to seek employment in dangerous environments. Officers of the Metropolitan Police fell into this category, constantly being at risk from assault or attack, or finding themselves in perilous situations such as fire, or tackling runaway horses or carts. The first officer of the Met killed on duty was PC Joseph Grantham, who died just nine months after the formation of the force in 1829. After being kicked in the temple while attempting to break up a fight, PC Grantham's wife had given birth to twins the previous day. And they, along with so many children and policemen in the future, would grow up as part of a family struggling to make ends meet after the loss of the main wage earner. Many faced the reality of fracture and dispersal into the workhouse. There was no provision for the families of fallen police officers, and in fact, a total of 77 metropolitan policemen would lose their lives in the line of duty before something was done. When Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Henderson became Commissioner of the Met in 1869, Following the death of Sir Richard Maine, he was determined to set up some form of support for the families left behind. The seed had perhaps been planted by Sir Richard in September of 1867, when along with commissioners of other forces around the country, he had actually attended the opening of the first police orphanage, the Home for Destitute Orphans of Policemen at Brighton. This home, run by two sisters, appears to have been a small affair, caring for just 28 children and as such was perhaps deemed unsuitable for the needs of the Metropolitan Police. Henderson quickly formulated his plan for a Metropolitan Police Orphanage, and this was announced in police orders on the 19th of January, 1870. A building named Fortescue House on London Road, Twickenham, was purchased and opened its doors in October of that year, when 20 children became its first residents. A 
Admission was confined to children orphaned after the 1st of January 1870 and limited to two from each family. In addition, only children of officers who subscribed to the fund were admitted, which no doubt saw the number of subscribers increase as a kind of insurance. The City of London Police were invited to join the fund a year later, and the name was formally changed to the Metropolitan City Police Orphanage on 2nd February 1871. Within three years, 115 orphans were eligible for admission to the orphanage, and it became clear that Fortescue House was too small. In 1874, Wolseley House on Hampton Road, Twickenham, shown here, was purchased and opened on the 25th of September 1874. It would be the orphanage's home for the next 63 years. Initially providing accommodation for 200 children, Wolseley House was later extended to house another 60. But by 1878, there were 1,000 orphan children, and obviously not enough space to accommodate them. In 1883, it was decided to award a compassionate allowance of £2.12 per child to those who could not be accommodated at the orphanage. And within six years, 669 children have received this benefit while under the care of the families at home. The preparatory school, consisting of children aged between 7 and 10, saw around 20 pupils taught the basics of subjects such as reading, arithmetic, writing and grammar. Day for the older children would consist of half hour lessons of Bible reading, history, arithmetic, and geography, followed by science, bookkeeping, and art. In addition to these subjects, girls were taught more domestic pursuits such as needlework or cookery, and the boys got to play in the woodwork shop. All children were given daily physical exercise. Here you can see in the front row on the far right a young Neil Bell being put for his paces. <laughs> <laughs> the children ate a full, if not particularly varied diet. Monday's menu would be porridge and bread for breakfast, cold roast beef or mutton with potatoes and bread for dinner, and bread and butter with milk for tea. The diet seemed to agree with the children, however, for in 1889, just 80 cases of illness across 256 children were reported for the entire year. With Mr. Arthur Fox, the dentist of the orphanage, reporting a total of 86 extractions and 104 fillings in the same year. Upon reaching the maximum age of 15, the children were required to leave the orphanage. They were given help in finding a suitable job, many of the boys unsurprisingly joining the Metropolitan Police. Others emigrated to countries including Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and the States, the passages paid by the board of managers. Each young man or woman leaving the orphanage received a leaving certificate recording their behaviour and achievements, such as this one for Alfred Marsh, who spent six years at the orphanage in the 1880s. <coughs> in addition, those leaving were given a trunk, such as the one shown here. This contained a number of items designed to help them get started in the outside world. A close-up of the label pasted into the lid of this trunk, made out to one William Dixon, shows a list of items supplied. Each boy received the following. Two suits, one overcoat, three day shirts, two pairs of pyjamas, four pairs of socks, two vests, two pairs of underpants, six handkerchiefs, six collars, two neckties, two pairs of boots, one pair of slippers, a hat, a cap, and a brush and comb, and finally one toothbrush. In the bottom right corner of this label, is a note written by William Dixon saying, made by me in the carpentry shop, which seems to indicate the boys constructed their own trunks. 
Now I'm going to hand over to Neil, who's going to explain how the contents of these trunks were paid for and how other vital funds were raised. Thank you, darling. <laughs> You've got to sit down with some laser. Now for the crude part, money. <laughs> now for the crude part, money. There we go. <laughs> as I no doubt you're aware, running an establishment such as the orphanage requires severe funding. Upon the screen are the figures showing the number of serving policemen who subscribed to help fund the orphanage. The amount they raised during 1889 was £11,350, 7 shillings and 8 And whilst the policemen across all ranks subscribed to the orphanage's funding, expenses always managed to outstrip those subscriptions. Here we have the orphanage's expense sheet again for 1889. And you may note the expenses came to, on the bottom there, bottom right hand corner, £13,961, 6 shillings and 8 pence, far outweighing the subscriptions. Repairs, furniture and hardware, clothing, salaries and wages for teachers and housekeepers, housekeeping items such as soap and detergent, water, gas, fuel, books, school expenses, medicine and medical equipment. On top of this, there would have been special payments such as allowances for children and allowances for children who had applied to the orphanage pending acceptance. Funeral expenses were also covered and the making of the donation boxes and so forth. And even investment payments were made. You may note near the bottom a purchase of £570 worth of stock in the Great Indian Peninsula Railway Company. So one of the main questions for the committee to address was this. How could the orphanage subsidise its subscription money? The answer lays in uh, many ways. One being the donation box. Every station had one of them. Made by Willie Co, and usually located where Bobbies and members of the public had access, the monies from these boxes would be collated within each division annually and forwarded onto the orphanage. Again, this is from the 1889 accounts, and we can see that some of the biggest contributors via donation boxes were X, Y, E and S divisions, the City Police and Portsmouth Dockyard. However, the largest contributor for that year was a donation box located at the Crime Museum, again near the bottom of the sheet, which retrieved a whopping £7, 11 shillings and fourpence. Who says crime doesn't pay? <laughs> the general public must also be noted here, and thank for their generosity. In 1896, G Division Superintendent McKenzie was stopped in the street by a man who thanked him for the courteous conduct the police had taken towards him and promptly handed him a cheque for £1,000, a considerable amount for the period. This money was used to install a swimming pool. Regular charity events were also arranged, with the first being held at the end of August 1870 at the Crystal Palace and a few months before the official opening of the orphanage. Thousands of people would attend these fates, with the majority of attendees being policemen and their families. Those attending that 1870 event were entertained by 13, 13 divisional bands dotted around the grounds of the palace, a cricket match between the Coldstream Guards and a Metropolitan Police Eleven, two comic concerts supported by noted vocalists, and a ballet. Another, another event was held on the River Thames. Uh, in 1871 between the Putney and Barnes Bridges, where the crews of T Division and the Thames Police contested a boat race. One suspect the Thames boys may have had the slight advantage on that one, seeing as they had their own boat to practice in. The large
largest contributor to the orphanage funds by far was the police minstrels. Founded by the men of A Division in 1872, the minstrels were a concert party who blackened their faces, very PC, and performed songs and comedy skits. They toured police stations and musicals across the country and beyond. And some of their better known members include Deputy Commissioner Sir James Olive and Head of Special Branch, Branch Chief Inspector John Littlechild. By the time the police minister was disbanded in 1933, they'd raised a colossal uh, £200,000 for the orphanage, as you can see there. Following the similar vein to the minstrels, other concerts and shows were regular financial contributors to the orphanage, as well as money raised from day trips organised by local divisions. Here we can see how much money was raised by those events. The children also put on shows at the orphanage. And you can see my colleague here, a young Adam Ward, <laughs> fourth row from the front, near the middle, dressed as a nurse. I'm next to him with the beard. <laughs> Concerts were not restricted to local venues, nor were put on solely by the constables of the children themselves. Famous stars of the day also contributed their time and efforts to the orphanage. Stars such as the great musical performer George Robert, seen here entertaining the children at Twickenham. They would freely give up their time to lend support. <clears throat> Novelist and playwright Sir Henry Hall Kane also contributed. He wrote the address entitled An Address on Policemanship for a concert George Robert had organised in the midst of the First World War in 1917. The address was read by the great actress of her age, Miss Irene Van Burr in front of a packed palladium, including the Met Commissioner, Sir Edward Henry. The opening lines read, The policeman is a soldier of the street, his enemy is a vice and crime. Against these foes, he wages warfare. He has many victories, and some of the greatest of them, the world, hears nothing about. Perhaps they have a censorship at Scotland Yard which forbids it. Perhaps it is taken for granted that a policeman shall do his duty and die for it if needs be. Sooner or later, he does die. And then, as it as sorry, and then, if he has any dear ones to look after him who cannot look after themselves when he is gone, it becomes our duty to take care of them. The address was made into a booklet and sold to the public, with profits being donated to the orphanage. However, this was not the only publication to aid this charity. In 1881, the former head of CRD, Sir Charles Edward Howard Vincent, created a work which has become one of the main police guiding books, the Police Code. Howard Vincent's intention for the book was that it be used by constables, legal representatives and the general public alike. Housed in every police station, presented to every constable and readily available in most bookshops, the code provided guidance to the constables, explanations to the public and was used extensively from 1881 to 1930. Entries include... Dogs found. Any dog found by a constable straight on the highway must be taken to the station and given a pipe and a half of ounce of tobacco. <laughs> yes, it's that damn dog again. <laughs> Any dog found by a constable straight on the highway, not under the control of the person, and which there is a reason to suppose is savage or dangerous, may be seized by a police officer or constable and detained until the owner has claimed the same and paid all expenses incurred. I tried to discover a little something to make me sweeter. I may be refrain from breaking my heart. I'm so in love with you, John. 
I'll be forever blue that you give me no reason you're making me work so hard. That's right, this entry calls erosion. Those 1980s cup icons, lights and bottles. But Colin also covered erasers in reports, which I love. Infectious diseases, Adam, and informers. Collar numbers, helmets, oaths, and obscene publications again, John. <coughs> Even the misconduct of the police itself. When Howard Vincent died in 1908, his will decreed that any future profits made of the sale of the code will be donated to the orphanage. This gesture in death cements Howard Vincent's steadfast dedication to the orphanage and the children it housed. Right, shameless self-advertising time. A little while back, the 1889 edition of the police code was brought back to life by Adam and myself with the blessing of the current Metropolitan and City Police Fund. With historical, uh, with additional historical background on Howard Vincent, the orphanage and the code itself, we felt it is a wonderful insight not just into policing of the time but also the Victorian period. We have retained much of the original features, the entries remain untouched, the same fonts, cloth covering and so forth. Additionally, we have continued with Howard Vincent's wishes set out in his will and have restored the donation of profits to the orphanage's successor, the fund, meaning every copy sold of this new edition is a contribution to the current fund. By the end of the Edwardian era, the orphanage had been well funded since its conception 40 years previously. However, dark times were on the horizon. A nation would soon have to do its duty, and that included the current and past members of the orphanage. To elaborate on that, I shall hand you back to Adam. Thank you, Neil. By the early part of the 20th century, those children who had entered the orphanage in its early days were now mature adults. Hundreds of boys had passed through the orphanage in the 40 years since it opened, and by the time the First World War broke out, many were eligible for army service. In fact, almost 300 former Met and City Police orphans did their bet, with 21 sadly losing their lives. This panel recording their names is now on display at the Orphans Fund offices in Putney. A War Memorial Hospital was built in the grounds of the orphanage and was opened by the Prince of Wales in 1923. In 1921, the Police Pensions Act was passed, probably hastening the closure of the orphanage. A widow of a constable or sergeant who died after completing five years' service was entitled to a pension of £30 per annum, with an allowance of £10 for each child, up to a maximum of three children per family. All but the very poor were thus able to keep their children at home, and in 1933, out of 650 orphans, only 277 actually accommodated in the orphanage. The following year it was 181, and on the 31st of December 1936, there were just 114 children in the orphanage, with 406 outside receiving compassionate allowance. As a result of these declining numbers, the Board of Managers took the decision to close the orphanage, and this happened on the 31st of July 1937. The very next day, its successor, the Metropolitan City Police Orphans Fund, came into being. An allowance of £36 per year would be paid to the mothers of all eligible children. In the course of its 67-year existence, the orphanage had accommodated, schooled and funded 2,807 boys and girls. Wellesley House, shown here, was taken over by Shaftesbury Homes and renamed Fortescue House School, with most of the boys in the orphanage at that time staying on to continue their education. Now I'd like to uh, ask Christine and Melissa to come help me for a couple of minutes for the next bit. 
you don't mind, please? No, I couldn't. No? No, I can't. Stage fright. I'd just like you to come here and uh, give a piece of paper to read out, that's all. Look, your glamorous assistants. Oh, Christine. No, we'll make Fox very Oh, yes. I'd just like you to be, in the next couple of minutes, I'd like to be Mrs. Brown, if that's okay. And when I give you a cue, just read what's on that piece of paper. Not everybody was happy when it was announced the orphanage was to close, despite the financial arrangements put in place to make sure each child was cared for. Two regular riders to the border manager at this time, Mrs. A. Brown of Ilford and Mrs. E. Wiggins of Goodmaze. Mrs. Brown signed off one memorable letter as follows. My family has done 86 and a half years in the Metropolitan Police and all we want justice and justice for our police orphans. And if they are turned out, we are going to let the world know everything. Signed, a disgusted Metropolitan Police widow. A note written in the file comments that these two women were well known to the board of managers of the Orphans Fund as inveterate grouses. Rosie <laughs> House was slowly demolished over the following 40 years, until by the time this photograph was taken in June 1984, only the building which had once been the War Memorial Hospital remained. In recent years it too was demolished and the site is now occupied by a Catholic primary school. Former orphans have attended reunions all around the world, such as this one in 1977 held at Hendon College. There are still two survivors who lived at the orphanage itself, the oldest being 98-year-old Iris Burrell, who left in 1935. Mrs Burrell was interviewed earlier this year, and her memories will appear soon on the fund's website. Much of the furniture from Wellesley House was removed to the fund's offices in Putney, including the boardroom table, which is still used for management meetings. The building, which answers the, acts as the fund's headquarters, is now the sole property owned by the fund. It is run by Secretariat Peter Smythe and Malcolm Cooper, who we'd like to thank for their kind assistance during our preparations for this talk. Also held in the Putney office are the archives of the fund, including minute books, yearly accounts, and a vast range of related artefacts dating back to the 1870s, such as the silver ink well shown here, which was donated to the board by Sir Howard Vincent after he resigned as director of the CID in 1884. By 1970, 100 years after Sir Edmund Henson had founded the orphanage, some 13,535 children had benefited from either accommodation or financial support. From the Compassionate Allowance, a total of £1,369,320 was paid to 5,243 widows in respect of 10,728 orphan children. Today, the Orphans Fund supports nearly 250 children and young adults each year continuing to rely on donations and subscriptions from serving police officers and kind-hearted members of the public. We'd like to finish by saying that Neil and myself are proud to have been commissioned to write an official history of the orphanage, which will be published in July of next year, to coincide with the 80th anniversary of the closure and the formation of the Orphans Fund, and all profits will be denoted to the fund. Thank you very much. was Adam Wood and Neil Bell with a history of the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage. Their republication of Howard Vincent's Police Code 1889 is available for purchase at mangobooks.co.uk 
and on Amazon.co.uk. And it's such a special book, I encourage everyone to look into buying a copy. And like I said in the introduction, by doing so, you're making a contribution to the Orphans Fund, a very worthy charity. I would like to give a huge thank you to Adam and Neil for allowing me to release their talk, as well as the accompanying slideshow. And thank you to Mark Ripper, Jackie Murphy, and Robert Anderson for making this event and the recordings we've shared with you all possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations on Jack the Ripper and Victorian and Edwardian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about our programs, feel free to find us on Facebook or Twitter simply by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.